welcome to the Healthcare IT Today interview series. We feel lucky to be able to talk to so many smart, passionate, and knowledgeable people in healthcare. Now, we're taking our favorite interviews and sharing them with you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy perspectives on the world of health IT. Hey everyone, I'm John Lynn, the founder and chief editor at Healthcare IT Today. We're excited to bring you another in our series of interviews with top leaders in health IT. Today's guest is Joseph Savinsky. He's senior director of AI and personalized medicine at OM1. Welcome, Joe. Great to be here. Thank you for having me, John. Yeah, excited to be talking about chat GPT. It seems like on social media, at least, no one can talk about anything else. But uh, before we get into that topic, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and OM1. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. So uh, my name is Joe Zbinski, as you mentioned. I oversee the artificial intelligence branch of OM1, which is a healthcare data and technology company. Uh, We're based in Boston, been around since um, 2015, and all of our work is about assembling large-scale, dense, rich um, uh, cohorts of data on millions and millions of patients that we can study and do research on to improve healthcare outcomes. Um, My specific branch focuses on how we apply tools from artificial intelligence to those data assets to do things like help find patients who aren't diagnosed with diseases or, or predict outcomes to treatment. Yeah. And I think that's really the overarching topic is AI today. I mean, chat GPT has kind of caught the the social winds, if you will, mm-hmm. because it's produced something that we hadn't seen before, and at least as effectively as they're doing it. So what would you say is maybe, you know, what, what does chat GPT really teach us about what we can expect from AI in healthcare? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, certainly the term AI in healthcare has been bouncing around for years now, and there's been a lot of good work that's been done. Um, But I think one of the magical things with ChatGPT, the reason it's probably taken off so much on Twitter and in the media, is because it almost feels tangible. You know, people Mm. can type in their query and they can get a response that seems almost magic because as anyone who's played with the thing has experienced it, it feels like it was written by a human. It it almost is scary in that way. Um, There's been a lot of progress, obviously, up until this point, including in healthcare, but I think that's what flipped sort of to the light bulb moment um, in people's minds. What that means immediately, um, we can certainly talk about, but, but at a high level, I think this just tells you there's something to AI um, in terms of people's ability to interact with it, to ask it questions. And obviously there's many questions that come up in healthcare all the time where it's useful to be able to put in a question, get an answer that's real and verified and, and intelligent. Um, and I think that use of AI is going to you know, become more and more important. And I think that's what's made it special is that it's almost unlocked creativity in our own minds about how we can leverage AI. I mean, we saw the recent announcement of Doximity with their application of it to do things like denial letters and how do you respond to insurance companies, which I love the idea that AI is responding to insurance companies. Uh, you know, no human should have to deal with an insurance company, but you know, like, <laughs> I, I don't know that, that that's what it feels like to me is it's almost unlocked the creativity of the humans to say, Oh, maybe I could use AI. Is that kind of how you've seen the response from the customers you talk to? It is. Yeah. Because I think there's this notion that out there in data sets and real world data sets, for example, which just means all the data that don't come from clinical trials. So the things that get captured when you know someone goes to the doctor's office or they're just living their life, we're all aware that there's information in those data sets, but it's hard to pull that information out, right? We can observe it directly. Like we can do a search and say, were you ever diagnosed with 
you know, um, cancer or have you ever had a stroke, those sorts of pieces of information are easy to ask. And they're not so different from how you might use, you know, something like Google traditionally, you'd ask it a question and it comes back with kind of static indexed information that we're all familiar with. I think as you point out, you know, there's a creativity to how do you pull out some of that information you know is in there, but that you don't have a good way to access without these kinds of tools. We've certainly been doing a lot of work using AI to answer that question. How do you pull out the information we know is embedded in, 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 in real world data? Um, and these chat GPT-like tools almost give humans the ability to translate that intuition. I know there's something there into something they can type in, and then the, the machine is able to interpret what they've typed and give them the answer that that they knew they were looking for, I guess. You know, these answers we get from these large language model tools kind of look like what our brain would would conjure. Um, we know to be in the data set somewhere. Um, and and you know, they give us a way to access it. So that that creativity of how you interact with the data is probably what these things are starting to unlock. It's similar um, uh, if you've if you've seen any of the other applications. Uh, of some of these generative AI tools, like within images, um, that that also kind of hit social media in a big way in 2022. Um, but kind of kind of similar thought process, right? You can imagine something existing. Your imagination is a powerful tool. Um, hard to translate that to a computer, but through these these um, generative models, um, we have a way to do it, and you see your creativity realized. Yeah. No, we definitely want to use some of those image ones for what we do at Healthcare IT today. It's fascinating, but you're right. It still requires the human creativity to do it. I think one one thing that's interesting, you know, and you kind of alluded to it in your intro about OM1 is that you've done a lot of this work with the diagnosis layer, whereas, you know, in healthcare IT today, we've certainly covered AI being applied to administrative areas, which feel safer uh, to many people, right? Mm -hmm. Doing it for revenue cycle, the chatbot on your, on your website, et cetera. But how do you see kind of AI making a difference in the diagnosis side of things? Yeah, I am so glad you asked because it is something that I personally and we as a company have spent lots of time and resources understanding as a question. Um, I agree that sort of these, these administrative applications of AI and healthcare were a really good place to start. There's a reason that healthcare is slower to adopt these tools than other industries. It's because the things we do with tools in healthcare impact people's health. Um, so we have to be careful. And those applications gave us some good confidence these things work. I think they did a lot of nice uh, you know, labor on the side of getting people comfortable with the idea, even if their immediate application had nothing to do with, with patient care, for example. Mm -hmm. Just seeing them around was, was useful. But in diagnostics, you know, it, it, it does go back to this kind of intuition question about there's something in the data that can tell me more than what I can see right now. Um, that's where... Uh, we've used a combination of data and AI to kind of answer some, some diagnostic questions. So I mentioned up front, what OM1 does is assemble these longitudinal health history records on large patient cohorts. One of the things that's true, if you think about those, those trajectories, is somebody who ends up with a diagnosis you know, today was in somewhere with respect to their health six months ago or a year ago or three mm. years ago. There were things beginning to happen to them that were uh, you know, maybe manifesting as symptoms. So maybe went to urgent care, the primary care provider and said, I've got a headache or I've got, you know, pain in, in my knee or whatever it is. Um, maybe, you know, they go get a test, maybe they get referred to a specialist, maybe nothing happens, but then they come back three months later because, you know, the symptoms haven't resolved, whatever. These are almost like a trail of, of breadcrumbs. They're like a, a sequence of things that, that happen. 
in that patient's journey that lead up to a diagnosis point. Um, and if you can see that happen in one patient who ended up with a diagnosis, then you see the same pattern in a second and the same pattern in a third, you begin to have some notion that there is an ability to say, if these things are happening, can we skip to the end? You know, not in a, a, a confirmatory way, right? We always need to check in the clinical setting that a patient has a condition, but can we at least say, this is someone who should be, you know, thought of or highlighted or flagged or, or considered for, you know, screening because they're kind of down the path, right? And what AI is good at is finding those almost breadcrumbs. I like to think of it as saying, you know, finding the fingerprint that distinguishes those mm -hmm. patients as they make their way through their journey. Uh, and then once it knows the fingerprint, it can go look for that fingerprint elsewhere. So it can go find people who are, you know, along the way, but haven't reached diagnosis yet. Um, these are not easy things for humans to do at scale. And that's why AI is so powerful. Um, I, I often say with AI, you know, if the AI can be reduced to a checklist, right? If it's like you have, you know, A, B, and C, and then you have the disease, then we don't need AI. And medicine's been doing work for a long time to come in up with, a, exactly. <laughs> and it's good work in a lot of cases, right? Like it's, it's you sure. know, not to cast dispersion on it at all, but there are cases, you know, rare disease is a great example where any given provider, unless they're super specialists in that rare disease, is not gonna see more than a handful of cases in their entire, you know, practice career. They won't be able to pick up these patterns because they just don't have the volume uh, to be able to see them. Um, AI is really good at those high volume applications. That's an interesting uh, uh, thought about, you know, and I love the idea of the breadcrumb or the fingerprint that you're looking for mm -hmm. and helping them to identify the fingerprint earlier uh, or maybe even discover it and then, you know, reinforce what they've, what they're seeing in person. You know, I heard this from a sepsis company that was trying to detect sepsis. And I wonder if you've seen the same thing happen where they detected sepsis so early that the usual treatment for sepsis didn't work, right? Like the crash cart comes yeah. and they're like, wait, they're not crashing because <laughs> you determined right. it so early, right? Have you seen that same thing where you discover the fingerprint so early that now the, the model of care needs to change because the doctors are so used mm -hmm. to getting them later stage in the process or whatever it might be? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. I would say we focus more on longer term and chronic applications. So mm -hmm. usually when we pick someone up earlier in in the pathway, um, first of all, it's a relief to the clinician who's mm -hmm. you know observing. Yeah, especially if it's a rare disease they didn't know about. That's great. Yeah. Well, and they know what to do, right? They'll they'll say, like, I know if this person has a progressive condition, I can stop. Uh, or you know, slow down the progression of the, their disease potentially through a treatment I have available, and otherwise, you know, they might not have come into my office until they already had some sort of permanent damage um, to one of their organ systems. You know, I can I can get ahead of that, right? So, like, I, I think with chronic conditions, it's more we do know what to do. I think your your question about paradigm shifting comes more down to the question of you know how do we how do we make a better case um, for intervention at the right time for patients mm -hmm. who get discovered through these tools? Right. I think there's you know, tremendous underuse of effective treatments we have um, because right now we have to think about everyone in sort of a blocky kind of crude way, right? We have to say without a personalized ability to say, here's where you are on your progression journey versus you versus you. We don't know, you know in each instance when and when not to, to start a particular treatment or to say, you know, this one might help this patient uh, reduce their risk of progression, whereas for this other patient's not gonna help. That sort of personalized insight um, 
sometimes we have it in, in, in healthcare, but there's huge amounts of work to be done there. And that's, that's the other thing that the AI helps with. It helps say, you know, you might be kind of seven steps down your journey and I might be five steps down my journey. Those are different um, in terms of what, what the you know, clinicians do with the information and the AI mm -hmm. can kind of give that insight. Interesting. So I saw that OM1 also works on treatment plans. So let's talk about that. How are you applying AI to things like treatment plans? Yeah. So that actually connects to what we were just talking about. So, you know, ultimately there's a world where um, treatment will be, I, I believe, and should be personalized down to the individual level. Um, what that means to me is taking into account everything that's unique about that patient. What is the best course of action for them? tailored to their state today, you know, and, and their expectations in the future. We're, we're far from that right now um, as, as an industry, certainly. But what we're doing there, you know, I, I, would, I would put it into a few different buckets. One thing we do is say, can we put tools in clinicians' hands that help with shared decision-making, for example, around preference-sensitive treatments, which just means, you know, treatments where it's not like a, a life-saving thing that the patient really doesn't have a choice about. Um, it's something mm -hmm. where they have to weigh pros and cons, right? So a joint replacement is a great example. If you're going to get your knee replaced, it's because in most cases you're having pain, you know, limit of, of mobility or function, um, but surgery is a big deal. Um, and the outcomes from joint replacements are not always great in terms of improvement of, you know, the symptoms you have. So what we do with AI is say, given your personal factors, you know, some things about your medical history, some things about your your preferences, you know, how you, you describe your symptoms and so on. Here's your personalized chances of feeling better if you go forward with surgery. That may be 85% for you. It may be 35% for me. That's mm -hmm. a big deal because right now when people go in uh, to, to make these decisions, they don't have that level of personalized insight. They can say on average, you know, two out of three people or whatever the correct number is uh, do feel better after something like that. Um, but I don't know what that means for me personally. That's, that's what the AI is letting us do. The other thing we, we do with, um, with treatment planning is to say there are highly effective treatments, both you know, device-based treatments, pharmacy-based treatments, non-pharmacologic treatments, you know, therapies, and so on, that are being used in patients, um, but that are not being used in other patients who look like the patients where they're being used, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. And this comes back to that whole picking up the breadcrumbs, signatures, you know, really it's, it's, it's developing a phenotypic fingerprint of people who are using and benefiting from a therapy and then asking the question, why aren't these other people um, having access to those same therapies because they look the same, right? They, they have the same progression of symptoms. There's other characteristics that look similar. Um, that can help to kind of bring clarity to the question of, of, you know, what should be done for a particular patient. It doesn't mean that, you know, that a patient will always go on to receive the therapy that we're highlighting. But again, it's this personalization saying, you know, can we find people who look like they'd benefit from uh, something more personalized in terms of their treatment thinking than where they're at right now. Yeah. I mean, your example is fascinating. Uh, I have a family member who just went through the joint replacement decision. <laughs> exactly what you described uh, was what they wish they'd had more of that data. So it's so fascinating. And, 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 you know, you're looking at it, we see it in genomics a lot, right? Where a certain drug 
affects some genomic marker and and it's amazing the impact and i, I think we're going to see an explosion of that so it's interesting to see that applied to other data beyond just genomics a, a similar concept yeah. but as i look at it it's like you know, you said, yeah, we haven't gone far enough with personalizing the treatment plans for these people. Is that because we don't trust the AI to personalize care to the entire population or are there other factors like, or, you know, I mean, I kind of look at it like, well, more data is better than no data, which is kind of mm -hmm. what it feels like in a lot of cases today. So how, how do you look at it like that trust or are there other factors that are kind of holding us back? Yeah, that's there's a whole lot contained within that question. Um, certainly, I'm in on your side. You know, I like to to think more data is better, even at a personal level. You know, mm -hmm. I, I measure things about my own health and so on. Um, I'm kind of a data person, and not everybody is that way. You know, sure. uh, so I think there's there's space for personal preference in all of this at the at the, the patient level and also the physician level. But I think, you know, more broadly, why is there this gap between where we could be with personalization and where we are? Um, few things on it. I do think now um, these AI tools are certainly good enough in a lot of application areas to do this work, but that's not an old story, right? I don't know if that was true a decade ago. And mm -hmm. so there is there is certainly, as we were talking about earlier, uh, an appropriate conservatism in adopting these things. Um, so there's, there's an, you know, an expected lag from kind of the hot off the computer, like this works really well now until the, you know, it's running in, in your neighborhood PCP's office. Um, but I think that's that's beginning to change um, because these things have have now been out in the world for long enough that, you know, people have seen them working uh, well. I do think that, you know, AI and using kind of data that doesn't seem, you know, you, you can't kind of look at it in the same way that you might look at um, somebody drawing your blood or something like that. It, it can seem a little bit mysterious, and maybe that's where some of these trust factors come up. You know, certainly, um, again, both patients and physicians um, can have the attitude of of sort of like if I don't if I don't have the ability to understand exactly what's going on um, in terms of an algorithm, how can I how can I trust what it's saying? Um, I do think there the answer is really not trying to say we've got AI and we're, we're just applying it in healthcare. It's to start with, we are oriented towards care and towards outcomes. And we're doing this AI stuff because we think it's helpful um, and not just helpful, but helpful in ways that, you know, we couldn't get to with other tools. Um, and we're not going to try and shove this down people's throats. We're not going to try and um, blow up, you know, the care pathways that exist. Um, but we are going to try to augment, you know, uh, key decision points. I'll give you one specific example. I know when I talk to um, uh, a lot of clinicians, for example, you know, rheumatologists who are treating something like rheumatoid arthritis, they will know and they'll tell you that, you know, if they're treating a patient, that patient will reach a, a point in the decision fork about, you know, whether to start a particular therapy where they've got an 80% chance of, of feeling better based you know, on that therapy, meaning that eight out of 10 people will feel better and two out of 10 won't. The doctor doesn't know if the patient in front of them is in the 80 or the 20. Uh, that's yep. a point, a decision point where we can put in some personalization AI in a way that I don't think destroys trust and just say, this patient looks more like the 80 group or more like the 20 group, not you know, uh, superseding the physician's decision, not doing any, anything scary from the patient's perspective, but we're just helping. That's the way I think these things will will get uh, more widely adopted. Yeah, well, and I, I think that is the key question here is, 
you know, how do we get clinicians to trust the AI so they actually use it? You know, what what's required? Is it studies? Is it outcomes? Is it, you know, because for good reason, doctors are scared to use them because they're liable for them. And 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 we know that the law is slower than AI, right? Like oh, yes. the laws Definitely. around AI are slower to develop than the AI itself. And so, you know, there, there has to be some modicum of trust for the clinician to say, okay, I'm willing to put my license, my livelihood on the line. So, how do you see that path? Is it is it really like, hey, here's tools to support you, kind of like what you just described? Is it studies? Is it outcomes? How do you approach kind of getting clinician trust and what's required to get that? Yeah. So I think I've de- developed, at least in my own experience in this field, a few things that I think are, are helpful um, in building trust and relationship with, with physicians. Um, one is certainly, you know, doing uh, good you know, publishable work where you can, you can show that these things are working. It's not practical to publish everything all the time, but people appreciate when you take the time to kind of lay out in a formal way, um, what you're doing and what the outcomes were. So I think that, that helps a lot. We focus a lot on um, white box AI modeling. So not black boxes that absorb data, spit out a result and, you know, don't ask it for anything else in a way that's kind of what ChatGPT is like. It's very hard to describe what's going on. One reason it's so mysterious, right? We ask these things, these queries, um, they come back with these results and it's kind of like, how did it do that? It's very hard to answer that question, actually. Even for experts, it's very hard to answer that question. Explainable AI is the hardest. <laughs> exactly, but we try to do it, you know, at least in the sense of saying, first, the technology is working really well in a way we can demonstrate numerically, statistically, and so on. But second, we can tell you things that are coming from the patient's history that the AI is surfacing and that will make sense to you as a clinician um, in terms of concordance with, with what it's saying. You know, we do a lot of work in mental health, for example, looking at mm-hmm. you know, patients with, with depression. Um, we did quite a bit of work recently in trying to distinguish patients with treatment-resistant depression, which is really tough because there's not really a standard definition for treatment resistance, but at the same time, lots of good therapies out there for patients who don't respond well to some treatment. So it's, it's a lot of need. Um, in that area, you know, we, we have very well-performing AI to pick out these patients when we're looking for them, but we can also say, this is someone, you know, who, who has manifested a string of really severe, you know, instances of their depression over time. We can surface that and show it to the psychiatrist and say, this is why this is happening. That's a big trust building factor. The final thing I would say is just um, not, not getting out over our skis. Let me put it that way. Um, you, you bring up a good point that you know physicians are the front line of, of, of healthcare. They're the ones with the license. They're the ones ultimately making the decision. They're the ones who are responsible. Um, my wife's a primary care physician and we talk <laughs> a lot about the responsibility you know, is in her hands and in, in, in the hands of those frontline clinicians. So we don't want to ask them to do things with that responsibility that the AI can't really support. So for example, I, I do not claim, we would never claim that our AI tools for diagnosis should supplant um, a diagnostic process. You know, if the doctor says this patient doesn't have the disease, I'm not going to say because my AI gave an answer, it should be written in the patient's record. Um, that would be getting out past the capabilities and also, you know, it, it would violate sort of that trust we have with the physicians. Yep, makes sense. 
Well, Joe, I think you offered some great insights and perspectives as we kind of dive into this new future that I think we all know is inevitable. The question is, what's the pathway there? And I think you gave us some uh, a good view on where, where this path is headed. So thanks so much. And thanks everyone for watching and listening. If you want to find more great healthcare IT content like this, be sure to check it out at healthcareittoday.com or search for Healthcare IT Today on your favorite podcasting application. Thanks, Joe. Hey, thank you. 